In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. So many of you know I have five grandchildren, and two of them live locally, but three of them live in the state of Washington with my daughter Gretchen and son-in-law Mark. And their ages are Kai is eight and a half, Kalena will turn five in October, and Ella is two and a half. And often, Gretchen and I talk all the time, either FaceTiming or phone calls, and often she or I will call each other in the morning right around breakfast time because the children are contained in one spot, and it ten they, they're busy, they're eating, and it tends to be a time where we can maybe talk a little bit. So... On Friday, she called me, and she said, Nona, guess what we're having for breakfast? And I said, I don't know. She said, we're having cream of wheat, and the kids are having it for the first time. Gretchen telling me this because she knows that's my favorite hot cereal. And I said, so kids, how is it? And Kalina said, oh, I love it. And, no, and Ella, you know, two and a half, said something unintelligible. And Kai... Gretchen, and I said, Kai, and Gretchen said, he hasn't touched it. So, you know, I said, Kai, you've got to try it. It's the best. You're going to love it. Brown sugar, you know, you're, it's going to be great. So we started talking, and typically in our conversations, there are interruptions, and I suddenly heard Gretchen say, Kai, bring your bowl back to the table. You need to eat some of the cream of wheat. And I heard him protest a little bit. And it went on for a minute or so, and Gretchen said, you need to bring that back to the table, and you have to eat three bites. So, you know, he made his way back to the table, and we talked a minute or so more. And then she said, Kai, if you don't eat three bites, you have to give me $10. <laughs> Money talks to this kid. He's at that age where, you know, he... he gets the value if he saves up his dollars and his chore money and stuff that he can go buy a Lego or something that he wants. So very shortly after she, she put down the $10 rule, <laughs> Kai started to lose it. He started to fall apart. And Gretchen said, Mom, I got to go. So we said goodbye. I went off to work, and we had our days, and on my way home on Friday, I called her, and I said, so how did the meltdown go? And she said, it was total and complete. He totally lost it. He flipped out. He started screaming, I hate you. I'm going to run away from home, and I don't want to be in this family anymore. And, you know, it went on and on. And you have to understand that Kai's a really good kid, but he had one of those moments. So Gretchen got him calmed down, and she said to him, Kai, do you realize you just totally flipped out over a bowl of cereal? And, and he kind of chuckled, and she said, why did you get so upset? And he said kind of in a raised voice, an angry tone, I'm not perfect. <laughs> and Gretchen asked him, who told you you had to be perfect 
And he said, I did. <laughs> so, of course, a conversation ensued about how there's no expectation to be perfect. I think we all have struggles with that demon of perfection, trying to be perfect, either by our own standards, like Kai, it was coming internally from him, or by standards that have been imposed on us by our parents or a teacher or a coach or a boss or, you know, the list is kind of endless of the outside influences that we tend to think expect perfection from us. A few weeks ago in the gospel, we even heard Jesus say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And taken out of context, I listen to that and go, yeah, right, Jesus, I'll get right on that. You know, I, I, I'm able to do that not. So this false notion that we need to be perfect is also embedded in our culture and in our language. For example, you are the perfect person for this job. That outfit looks perfect on you. That was the perfect song. I know the perfect place to, and on it goes. My grandson Kai had somehow gotten it into his head, maybe because it's the first child syndrome, that he needed to be perfect. But I believe that that sense or that idea that we need to be perfect goes deeper than first child syndrome. I think we all deal with this demon of trying to be perfect. Think for a moment about what standards of perfection you hold for yourself. And as you think about that standard of perfection or those, for many of us it's those, also think about how often you fail to meet those standards. So I'm going to give you a second to think about that. Today's reading in Paul's letter to the Romans is addressed to the young, emerging church in Rome. It's a church that Paul only knows by reputation. He is not responsible for having planted it or pastored it, but he is planning a trip to Rome, and he is writing an introductory letter to the Christians in Rome to lay out who he is, why he's coming to visit, and the theology that he has learned and taught and, and that has grown him into the Christian that he is. So, so the whole book establishes him as a leader in the church to this church that doesn't know him yet, to this community that doesn't know him yet. And he writes, he writes this theological groundwork, framework, from which he then teaches how we're supposed to live out as people who believe in Jesus Christ. So the whole letter is framed in that kind of reference. He teaches that Jesus Christ is to be Lord of every area of our lives, and the entire letter points to the fact that we're not just supposed to believe and think certain things, but that we're supposed to act on those beliefs and thoughts. Paul's point is that faith is expressed by our obedience. 
In the first 11 chapters, Paul's laying out this theological groundwork. And I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version of the first 11 chapters. People have studied this letter for years and years and years, and people write their doctoral thesis on it. So, so forgive me for just giving you a, a couple quick points. But here's a couple things that Paul tells them before we get to today's chapter that we're studying um, in Romans 12. Paul tells them, tells them and us that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are no longer under the cloud of sin. He tells us that Jesus grants us peace and extends grace to us. We hear in 822 that if God is for us, who can be against us? And one of my favorite passages, he says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. So then we get chapter 12. And this is where the shift really begins to happen from Paul laying out the theology to starting to talk about practice. And the first two verses of Romans are key, I think, in this. They say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's that perfect word again. Here's the call for each of us and for the Romans in their day, for every Christian through the ages, the call is to completely give ourselves to God, to completely say, okay, I'll be a living sacrifice, God. I'm not able to do it on my own, but here I am. Take me as I am, and I'll try to do your will. And I believe most of us who have turned our lives over to God have that as our heart's desire. We want to be who God wants us to be. We want us to be who God's created us to be. And, and often, we beat ourselves up over our failings, and we unnecessarily carry guilt instead of joy. We experience turmoil instead of peace. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from St. Julian of Norwich in her famous book um, entitled The Interior Castle. And this is what she says. The Lord looks on his servants with pity and not with blame. In God's sight, we do not fall. In our sight, we do not stand. Both of these are true. But the deeper insight belongs to God. In God's sight, we do not fall. To Julian's point, as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's so easy to miss a key word in the very first verse. Mercies. The mercies of God. Our perfectionist selves 
often skip to the offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And our reaction is, wait a minute, I'm not cleaned up enough to do that. I can't live into and be knowing who I am, holy and pleasing. I know about the areas where I really struggle, and I know where I fall short. I can't live up to it. We forget that it's by God's mercies extended freely to each and every one of us as we present ourselves to him. The cleaning up, the perfecting, if you will, is not up to us. That's God's work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as we, on, in an ongoing way, give our lives over to God and say, here I am. I'll, I'll try to listen and do what you call me to do, God, and I know I mess up, but here, here I am. I present myself to you. And the truth is, in God's sight, we do not fall. When we turn our lives over to God and say, I'm willing, you're able, together we'll try to make this happen, we don't fall. That's God's perspective. It's the turning over part, and it's a process. We don't get it right, and we, it's, it's constant. In fact, it's been said that the problem with living sacrifices is that they continually crawl off the altar. When we, it, when we live our lives out as a living sacrifice, we make mistakes, and we, and we turn again and again from the way in which we're no, we know we're supposed to behave or we think we're supposed to behave this standard of perfection we think we're supposed to live up to. And putting aside that false notion of perfection, that we think that God demands perfection of us, we can look at the second verse in Romans um, that is in today's passage, which I love the way a translator named J.B. Phillips renders it, and I'll read that for you. You can follow it in your bulletin, too but the wording is different. J.B. Phillips translates Roman 12, Romans 12, 2 in this way. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. Thus you will prove in practice that the will of God is good, acceptable to him, and perfect. You see, that part is, in God's sight, we do not fall. Because as we give our lives to God and, and, and try to stay out of the trap of allowing the world to squeeze us into this mold that we just flat out don't fit. We're created by God for specific purposes and for specific ministries, and we each have different gifts and talents, as we've heard in this same letter that we've read today from Paul. And God doesn't expect us to fit some mold that the world imposes on us of perfection or whatever you feel expectations have been put on you. God doesn't expect that of us. He's created each of us in a unique way, in a loving way, to offer our gifts and offer ourselves to each other and to him, and he takes care of the transformation part. 
The only perfection Paul mentions is God's. My grandson Kai's cry, I'm not perfect, is one we are wise to heed. The really great news is we're not expected to be. Amen.